tough transition. Trunk or treat, unicorns to <laughs> fire, sulfur. Uh, so yeah, if you're having a, a cozy morning, I think it's, it's, it's over now, at least for the, the, next, the next remaining little bit. Also, fun fact, is these are the, the most verses I've ever tried to cover, not just what Kate read, we're going to try to cover a lot. Last week when Mike was getting ready to do 18, I was like, you know, I don't think there's enough in 19 for me. Could you leave me some of 18? And he was, he was gracious enough to get, give me some more, which is actually really helpful to make it all fit. So uh, hopefully your football team plays at four and not at one. Uh, it's going to be a long morning. Okay, that's the last we're going to laugh, I think. So uh, here we go. The, uh, I'm really like just procrastinating at this point. I'm going to dive right in. The question we're going to look at today uh, in this passage is how do we walk by faith in the face of chaotic evil? How do we walk by faith in the face of chaotic evil? How do we look at the evil in the world, pain and suffering as a result of that evil, and if we're honest, look at the evil in our own hearts and the pain and suffering that we cause in our own uh, sin. And how, how do we walk by faith? What does the Bible say about it? How does God, more importantly, interact with humans when it comes to the chaotic evil of, of humanity's brokenness and sin and suffering? And just put the bottom line right out there uh, here at the beginning. God interacts with broken, suffering, and sinful humanity with justice and mercy. God is both just with good, glorious, glorious wrath towards evil in response to the cries of the oppressed. And God is merciful, dealing kindly with people, having pity, not giving people everything that they deserve. These two unchanging aspects of God's character, his justice and his mercy, are abundantly clear. So to answer our question, how do we walk by faith in the face of chaotic evil We trust God in his mercy and justice. But here's the rub. Here's the faith part. Like, it's not just like, oh, just know the fact that God is just and merciful. Uh, Because the the difficulty is that how his justice and mercy plays out in, like, the nitty-gritty details of human history, including our own little personal human histories, is, is something that I think most of the time we do not understand. The what, God's justice, God's mercy, that is abundantly clear from Scripture. But the how, like how those two things tie together and are going to play out in the grand scheme of things is something that we often do not understand. I remember hearing a speaker back in high school uh, share a story about a man, a 20-year-old man in Germany, a long time ago riding on a train. And then there's a train accident, and he's thrown from the train very fast, and he narrowly misses a tree and lands in a pile of leaves, unharmed. And he asked us all, high schoolers, like, is that good or bad? Like, good. You know, the guy didn't die. He's like, what if I told you that man was Hitler? And the Holocaust could have been avoided. I don't know if this is a true story or what his point was, but it stuck with me. But, and I, and I tell it, I tell it because I think that kind of points out our limits of like, if you're, you know, gun to my head, I want him to not hit the tree, but I don't know everything. I don't know all of the, the variables. I'm not God. God's justice and mercy are decided and executed at a level that is just so staggeringly above us. And if we try to understand it, it will destroy us, the Bible says. Psalm 73 says it like this. It's a whole psalm where he's just ranting about, like, why are the wicked doing so well and I'm struggling? And the psalmist says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. 
I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, God. When we get bogged down on being the judge of holding God up to our standard of what we think should be done, the Bible tells us that we get hardened. And it's a really profound inversion. Like if our humanity is lessened when we try to rise above our status as humans and play God. Like when we try to be the judge of all the earth, we actually become less than human, the Bible says. We become like animals, like bitter, reactionary. I mean, I don't know if animals will get bitter, but like reactionary, afraid, ignorant. So consider that brutish, heart, beast-like posture of Psalm 73 with the vision Psalm 131 gives us. Oh Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with matters too great or too awesome for me to grasp. Instead, I have calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child with its mother. Yes, like a weaned child is my soul within me. This is a beautiful picture of a, of a trusting posture where we don't have our eyes, our, our frowny faces, you know, roving, casting judgment on stuff that's just simply not within range for us to fully understand. It, it's, a, it's a picture of freedom from concerning myself with stuff that is just categorically beyond what I can fully comprehend. And instead, like a calm, quiet, trusting child. You know, this is like, you know, my three-year-old Johnny being worried about our taxes. Like, hey, bud, that's just like above your pay grade, which is why he's always calm and trusting and quiet. (laughs) Metaphor falls apart, but... I believe this is our invitation for us this morning, calming and quieting our souls in the face of chaotic evil and trusting that God is just and he's merciful and trusting that the how, the mechanics, the nitty-gritty of the justice and mercy playing out in the messiness of human history, we trust that's just beyond us. I feel a little bit vulnerable saying this because I feel like it kind of opens me up to you know the, the accusation of the classic anti-intellectual, you know, Jesus juke, like, oh, don't worry about bad stuff, like, you know, God's got it, everything's, everything's fine, or, you know, you, you share a pain or a struggle or a doubt, and, you know, people just, you know, tell you to have more faith or something. And, I mean, to be honest, I, to some degree I am saying that, you know, to some degree I think the Bible's saying that, like, trying to understand things outside our pay grade, above our qualifications as humans, finite humans, is just, is going to destroy us. But our passage also shows us that this kind of trust in God, uh, this kind of walking by faith in this justice and mercy is not like a, a, a frilly, happy, clappy Christianity where we just like ignore evil and pretend like everything is fine. Instead, walking by faith in the face of care like evil, uh, we see that our sorrow over evil, our desire for mercy, our desire for justice results in just this bold engagement, this bold interaction with the God of the universe. And he is compassionate and listens to us. The process of calming and quieting our souls, like the psalm says, involves running to God with our pain, our confusion, wrestling with just all these complex ambiguities of evil in the world. So let's dive into our text, and what we're going to do is just try to trace justice and mercy, the justice and mercy of God throughout the story. And my hope is that it just would break us. Like It, you, it, just, it, will, it will silence our fr- frantic evaluations, and we'll just receive this image of God being God, being just, and being merciful. So diving in, starting uh, in uh, Genesis 18, verse 20. Then the Lord said, 
because the cry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. This is a really important context to note that the destruction of an entire region that we're about to see happens because God has heard the outcry against these people, against these cities. The word outcry is used twice in these verses, and it's a word that is used in Scripture to mean the cries of oppressed people, the suffering victims of evil. This is very important. One thing the Bible is abundantly clear is that our God is a God who hears the cries of the oppressed, who is near to the brokenhearted. This is a beautiful reality of our God. He will pour out justice and wrath against evil. He will come in the defense of the oppressed. So on one level, this story can be a really beautiful, gratifying example of God hearing the outcry of the oppressed and responding with fiery justice against the oppressors. Justice is sweet. We crave it. And all justice flows from the, being, the very being of God. A few years ago, one of our good friends was sexually assaulted. And I remember sitting there in the courtroom with her during her trial, just praying, pleading, longing with God for justice to be done as this skeezy defense attorney got paid way too much to do this skeezy defense And then just being so overjoyed, moved to tears when the verdict came back guilty. Praise God for sweet justice. So as we look at God's justice coming down in literal sulfur and fire, I want us to remember that it was in response to hearing the cry, the outcry of the oppressed. Now let's look at uh, God's uh, mercy as he interacts with Abraham. Verse 22. So the men there turned and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes, suppose 50 of the five righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45. I'll I'll stop there and summarize. Abraham's interceding on behalf of this terribly wicked region. It's a beautiful picture of a righteous man who's experienced mercy from God and is interceding, pleading on behalf of wicked people. And he starts the negotiations at 50 righteous people to save the region. And then Abraham presses 45, and then 40, and then he thought it would take too long, so he moves to 10. Well, what about 30? And then 20, and then 10. And every time, God says, okay. God says, okay. For the sake of the 40, for the sake of the 10, I will not destroy it. As one commentator said it, Abraham is a man who won't take yes for an answer. (laughs) So that was pretty funny. We see an important part of God's justice in this passage. God is willing to be talked to, willing to be reasoned with. He's even willing to relent. Sometimes we can, uh, you know, project human qualities of anger onto God's justice. 
we imagine him being like a human and you know in rage or whatever, but God's not like us. His his justice, his wrath is not reactionary coming from a place of confusion or emotional stability or a bad night's sleep or something. God is immovably who he is. And he's measured, purposeful, clear headed, and he talks graciously with finite little Abraham. He's even sending two angels to investigate. Like, I'm, you know, God's omniscient. He doesn't need the recon team. It's like he's, he wants to check it out to see if it's really as bad as it seems. The, the key image I want us to get here it, uh, with, with Abraham interceding is how he, like, presses God. He's walking by faith, and he's interacting with God in the face of this chaotic evil right down the valley from him uh, in a particular way. Look at verse 25 again. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? This, this week as I studied, I just like, couldn't get past that beautiful rhetorical question. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? What we see Abraham doing here, he's, he's, his posture is, he's got one foot on God's justice. He knows that God is just. And he's got one foot on God's mercy, and then he pushes into God from that place. Like, that's, that's the foundation. He, he's engaging with God on the basis of who God has revealed himself to be. And it's beautiful. He's appealing for mercy on behalf of God's justice. How would it be just to let these righteous people perish with the wicked? There's a lot of complexity with this conversation that we don't have time to go into. But it, it's like... It's like Abraham, he's just got all these emotions, right? Like, he knows how wicked Sodom and Gomorrah are. He doesn't, something's got to give or whatever, but like, what about the, the righteous people? And he's just like engaging with God, the back and forth, justice, mercy, justice, and mercy. What about this? And the questions are hard. Is it just that the righteous would perish with the wicked? Like, I, I don't think so. But is it just that the outcry of the oppressed generations of victims would just go unanswered because of 10 righteous people in this current moment? I, I don't know, but his the beauty of his rhetorical question stands. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the end of the interaction is is a little strange. It just kind of peters out. Like it seemed like everything was like he, you know he had Abraham had God against the ropes. Like ten, nine, you know, just like take it all the way down to one. Why doesn't he go all the way down to one? Why does he go home after ten? Well, one commentator suggested that maybe you know, Abraham was like petering out because he was just starting to see the overwhelming complexity of trying to be the judge. These cities are wicked. Should 10 people save the whole thing? Should, should 10 righteous people get what they don't deserve? Like, I'm going home. <laughs> I, I, just need to, I just need to go home and go to sleep. God pre- or Abraham pressed God, wrestled with the tension between justice and mercy, and just went home. And that's key to walking by faith in the face of chaotic evil. Now we get to the chaotic evil. Verse 19, those two uh, recon angels, they go down the hill to Sodom, and uh, Lot, Abraham's nephew, pleads with them to stay the night in his house, which is like some, some classic hospitality. Uh, you go, go to the town square and someone typically, they didn't have hotels, would bring you in. But before they can you know, finish their uh, bourbon and go to bed, uh, it, turns, it turns dark. Verse 4, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. 
And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door behind him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So this is pretty pretty awful. Uh, Mercifully, you know, we got some uh, cleaning up of the text. You know, like they wanted to know the men or whatever. But, you know, suffice it to say, they wanted to rape these visitors. This is Lot's very, very brief moment of glory where he's trying to be a good person and pleads with them not to do this evil thing and protect his guests. Uh, And then the moment is very much over. Look at verse 8. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. So, anyone else sick to their stomachs? Just so many questions. You know, what, like, what would be the culture of a city for every single man, down to the last one, young and old, coming out to rape some visitors? Like, what in the world is going on that Lot would offer up his daughters? Like, you know, and then if you, like, map this out over, you know, time, over generations into the past, like, what must be the history of this region? What must be, like, like what kind of generational evil w- would have created this, this little instant, this little glimpse that we're, see- that we're seeing? Like, the unimaginable evil that must have been done in the culture to get us to this point. I don't have any way to tie a bow on it, but I do want us to see the God of the universe interacting with real-life humans in the midst of this chaotic evil. We don't understand, but one thing that we can clearly understand is that God is here. God is involved in this situation. He's heard the outcry. He's sent these recon angels. He's engaged with Abraham. Like, God is involved. What is he like? How, what does he do? He's involved He's gracious, he does due diligence, and he's not afraid of the depth of human depravity. Next, the angels clearly have, you know, all the recon that they need to know that this region needs to get obliterated. And they're going to try to get Lot's family out. And here we we see uh, some mercy in the justice in verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. (laughs) Here you have Lot facing a raging, lustful mob that almost destroyed him and broke down the door of his house to rape his guests, being told by the angels that he needs to get out in order to escape the punishment, and he's lingering. And also notice, this doesn't follow any of the scenarios that Abraham and God discussed. Like, there doesn't seem to be any evidence for ten righteous people Lot doesn't seem righteous. Abraham didn't even ask about Lot, which is kind of weird. Like, what's going on there? Is it some beef? with? I don't know. Uh, you know, it's not following any script or whatever. But God is there, and he's working out justice and mercy in a way that I think both are seen. Confusing, but both are there. Look what happens next in 13. Lot lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and brought him out and set him outside the city. You see this picture of these two angels being like, are you kidding me? You know, and just like grabbing them by the hand and dragging them out of destruction. Behold the mercy of God. God was merciful to light, even in his wavering, even in his repulsive offering up of his daughters, even as he whines with the angels about where to flee to the mountains. Look, look what happens next in 17. 
As they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your, if your, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest dis, the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee. It is a little one. Let me escape there. Is, not, is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And the angel said, Behold, I grant you this favor. I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. So even in his like wavering, he's like, arguing with the, with the angel. Like, really, you're in a place to make requests here? Uh, but we see the mercy of God again, and that Zor was one of the cities that was on the docket to be destroyed, and God relents, grants this favor. Do you see how God is executing judgment and showing mercy? He literally dragged Lot. He didn't give him an option. Like, he took him out of the, of the destruction and then protected the city. And then it finally happens, verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Well, friends, here we have a very clear example of God destroying the wicked. The outcries of the oppressed are responded to, and evil is obliterated off the face of the earth. Praise his name. God is just. Can we sit with this for, just for a minute? I know there's so many questions, nuances. I know it's, it's horrendous to think about fire and sulfur raining down on real human beings, but I don't want us to miss who God is and what his marvelous works and deeds are in the scripture. God destroys evil. God will not let evil go unpunished. Though the wrong looks off so strong, how's the song go? God is the ruler yet. We're asking the question, what do we do with chaotic evil? The story is chaotic. Very little of this story fits into tidy categories. Like, why was he merciful to Lot? Why did his wife look back and get turned into a pillar of salt? These questions don't have satisfying answers, at least that I've been able to find. It's, It's pretty chaotic. My point, my desire, my hope for us this morning is that we'd see walking by faith looks like observing these things with a foot on the foundational truth of God's justice and a foot on the foundational truth of God's mercy and trusting God that he's playing out those realities, playing out those immovable aspects of his eternal character according to his manifold wisdom. And I just love the picture that Abraham gives us in this situation. After the long bartering process with God, where he's kind of like running at the mouth, right? He's like, kind of like, oh, he's pandering, he's repeating himself, all that stuff. Verse 33 says, this is back in 18. And the Lord went his way, and when he finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And then in 27, it says, Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And look, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. I just want to picture these two moments of Abraham here for a minute because I think it's a helpful example. He presses God for mercy and then goes home, trusting the mess to God. And then, you know, imagine him waking up the next morning with a pit in his stomach, maybe already smelling the sulfur and smoke, maybe hearing screams. And he silently goes out to the same spot and just behold, just silently looks down on the justice of God. 
I love this picture of a man who profusely barters with God for mercy and then returns to his place and sleeps and awakes the next day and silently receives the work of God's justice and mercy. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Verse 29 is as close as we get to an explanation. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered Abraham. God rescued Lot. While the whole like 10 person righteous, 10 righteous person deal you know, wasn't really a possibility, God still found a way to be merciful. We get the conclusion to Lot's story here in uh, verse 30. It gets way better now. Uh, now Lot went up out of Zor. That was sarcastic, sorry. Uh, and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he went to plan A because he was too afraid to do his like audible. It just, man, poor guy. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So it, it's. Uh, yeah, it's not hard to be repulsed by Lot. Uh, you know, we see him like being told to do something, and he whines and gets the city that he wants to live in, but then he's afraid of that city, and now he goes to a cave. He's living with daughters. His, his wife has turned into a pillar of salt. He's living with his daughters, the same daughters he was willing to give over to this, you know, this mob, uh, and then we have them hatch this awful incest plan, and Lot's just like this, you know, so easily duped. He gets... This feels weird to say, uh, but he was sexually abused by his, you know, his daughters. To, and it just, what is happening here? And then out of that incest, it gets even worse. The last couple of verses of this section, verse 37 says, The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son, called him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. We see two people groups descending from Lot through his daughters, and it's the Moabites and the Ammonites. They, they exist throughout the whole rest of the story of the Old Testament, bearing the, the very name of the incest. Like Moab means in Hebrew, like, of my father. Ben-Amin means son of my paternal kinsman. And so, like, these, these people groups like, is, have, like, incest in their ethnicity, like, in their title. And we read in the rest of Scripture, there are wicked people. Again, I don't know how to tie a bow on this. Like God shows mercy, saves lots and his daughters, and what follows is incest and these people groups that cause problems for the people of God for centuries after this. Like this is this is the result of God's mercy towards Lot, incest and wicked people groups. Like what is going on? And that's that's my point. I don't know. It's not how I would have done it if God had asked my opinion, but he didn't. And my prayer is that as Jesus followers, we let this story just Break us, like break our frantic like pattern making, or frantic trying to balance the scales, or trying to make it fit into categories uh, that we so that we can you know understand why God did it and everything is neat and tidy. This I think this story breaks all easy ex- explanations of justice and mercy and good and evil. And the way that we walk by faith in the face of this chaotic evil is we stand on the truth of God's justice and mercy, and we press in. And we, and we sit with that rhetorical question, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? We can contend like Abraham, boldly, pr- boldly praying to God, duking it out with him about mercy, interceding on behalf of people who do not deserve justice. And then we sleep and we rise. 
we stay faithful to what God's called us to do in our immediate sphere of influence. And we trust God that he is who he says he is. I mean, the scope of evil that we are aware now <clears throat> in our day and age is crushing. You know, like, before the telegram, you only knew of the evil in your immediate, like, area, which, in my understanding of humans, that's plenty. But now we're, we're flooded with evil from the entire globe. This is an overwhelming time to, to live in, an overwhelming amount of evil that we are tasked to process somehow. So if you're interested in a potential application for the sermon, I invite you to consider something that I just made up, the news-to-Bible ratio. What's your news-to-Bible ratio? How, how many minutes do you consume the news each day versus how many minutes do you consume the scriptures? And then the follow-up question would be, how do you think your news-to-Bible ratio affects your experience, your ability to trust God's justice and mercy? Well, you take it or leave it, but I think a lot of us could do with at least a temporary you know, news diet of information and fill that space with more of who God is. But of course you can't you can't escape it. You can't be a human with a pulse and not, you know, experience suffering, behold the suffering in others because of evil. But can we silently behold it, pour our hearts out and then just receive it? And trust that God is just, and praise his name for his justice towards evil and that he's merciful, praise his name. How do we know this? What's the ultimate display of God's justice and mercy? It's Jesus Christ, his sinless son on the cross. The actual one righteous man, not just dying with the wicked, but for the wicked, for me and you. The same difficult questions that Abraham's bartering with about God apply to the cross. Like, is it just that Jesus would die instead of me? That he was righteous and he should die instead of me? Our sermon text points to it. When it said that Abraham stood before God and said that he drew near when he starts his bartering, these in Hebrew are legal terms. It's the image of standing before a judge or like a, a lawyer or an advocate approaching the judge to plead a case on behalf of someone else. The drawing near part, <clears throat> approaching God on behalf of someone else. Abraham came with a case. He was a righteous man. He believed in God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Interceding for, before God for unrighteous people, but he couldn't do it. He couldn't take it all the way home, all the way down to one righteous man. But Jesus comes as that righteous man, the ultimate advocate before the, the judge of all the earth with the immovable, infallible plea for mercy. Father, Jesus says on our behalf, the wages of sin is death, and I've paid that wage. I've died. Father, spare them, have mercy on them, love them, forgive them, receive them into your family. Listen, not despite of your justice, but because of your justice. Because it would be unjust to, not, to, it would be unjust to receive two payments for the same debt. Just like Abraham appeals uh, for mercy on behalf of God's righteousness, Jesus appeals to mercy on behalf of God's righteousness because he has paid the debt, it's squared away, we can be justified in who Jesus is and what he's done. God, God would not be just if he simply just waved away evil, just like, hey, it's fine, yeah, don't, don't forget about it. No one would say that is just. If, you're, if someone you love is murdered, it would be a wicked and unjust judge who, there in the courtroom would be like, oh, you clearly did it, but it's fine. Like, well, how would you feel if, if your child got murdered and that happened? Like, we would be livid, and that would be a terrible, wicked judge. 
what the gospel shows us isn't honestly that much more comfortable because what if the judge gets down and takes the punishment for that murder that, that destroyed your life? Showing mercy. A price was paid. Someone paid the penalty for the crime. The murderer goes free. And the discomfort gets worse because, of course, if we're honest, we're not at the plaintiff table. We're not innocent in this courtroom. We lend any way to what Jesus says. We're all murderers. We're all guilty before the judge. We have suffered because of evil outside of us, and we have caused suffering and suffered ourselves because of our own evil. And in the cross of Christ, God's justice and mercy meet. Jesus' blood was shed for our evil, and he took the penalty that we deserve. Walking by faith in the face of chaotic evil, we face the moments of the, the crushing moments of confusion, just the, the overwhelming not rightness of just having eyes open any, any time of our lives here. We behold the justice and mercy of Jesus on the cross. We can trust him because he, he died for us. He loved us literally to death that he who would die for us dies so that justice and mercy can meet will surely not abandon us or leave us and that justice and mercy will have the final say. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we come, I come before you just so humbled uh, by who you are, how you work, your otherness, my creatureliness, and my finiteness. Father, I pray in your mercy, by the power of your spirit, you would soften our hearts to receive your word. You have sovereignly ordained that we would have this story and this account, uh, that we would see you in it. And Father, I pray that we would be able to both worship you for uh, your justice towards evil and also uh, praise you for the incredible grace that you provided for us in Christ. If anyone is here today who doesn't know you, um, who's struggling with justice and evil out in the world, who is scared to look under the hood at the, the evil in their own hearts, I pray that they would hear the invitation to you to bring it out to you and come to Jesus. Father, I pray that you would uh, convict us where we are trying to play play you, be you, and, and judge right and wrong, evil and good, uh, to the point where it's hurting our, our ability to trust you like a child. May we be like trusting children. In Jesus' name, amen.